Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Volume 706, The Way Things Work, April 5th, 2016. Visit broadwaybullet.com and subscribe with iTunes or RSS. And don't miss an episode. Lippa discusses his career as a composer-lyricist for the Broadway stage. Adam Feldman, theater critic for Time Out New York, discusses theater and the changing face of theater criticism and reviews. Gobby Alter and Tommy Newman share two songs from their musical band geeks, and Nick Cohn talks about his unconventional acting career and time with the long-running Avenue Q musical. So are you ready? Strap in and hop on board the Broadway Bullet. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thanks to the Dramatist Guild Fund for welcoming us to their space for today's podcast. Providing the music hall at DGF for writers to use for free is one of the many ways the Dramatist Guild Fund supports writers. I encourage you to find out more about DGF by visiting their website at www.dgffund.org or connecting with them on Twitter at DGFund. A location sponsorship also goes out to the longest-running play in America, Sheer Madness, now finally in New York City at the New World Stages. Go check out this funny show that'll leave you laughing and guessing the entire way through. And no, that's not what they told me to say. I saw the show. Up Close. All right, I'm sitting here with Andrew Lippa, who is uh, making a day of it, (laughs) hanging out. We, uh, in real time, just talked about the Dramatist Guild Fund, but having him in here to talk was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. He's a wonderful composer in his own right, uh, having done, among many other things, the Wild Party, which the Wild Party battle, which we got to talk about (laughs) a little bit. Uh, Big Fish, uh, Adam's Family, uh, among other things, how are you doing? I'm terrific. Thanks for having me on the program. So, um, I get, what got you into composing and writing lyrics in in the first place? What was the very beginnings of it? For I was always I was always a singer, and uh, I sang all through school. And I started playing piano late. Uh, I was almost 14 when I started playing piano. And uh, when I was in college at the University of Michigan, go blue. Uh, my lifelong friend, Jeffrey Seller, who later went on to co-produce Rent, Avenue Q, In the Heights, Hamilton, um, The Wild Party. Uh, Jeffrey said to me in college, mm-hmm. you like musicals and you play the piano. Why don't you write a musical? And um, what I heard was something like, you know, you live in a house and you eat pizza. Why don't you go to Amsterdam. You know, it was like completely non I couldn't understand it. And he said he had an idea and he wrote the words and I wrote the music and we presented uh, this uh, 45-minute musical to our teachers, uh, William Bolcom, the great composer, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning composer who was long a professor at the University of Michigan and was my composing mentor, and Brent Wagner, who was my musical theater professor, who is retiring uh, this coming year, actually in 2016. Um, and we played it for those two teachers, and they both took me aside and said, you have a real gift for this. You should keep going. And 
I've talked this. I've told this story many times because uh, that's how powerful um, something like that can be from people you respect. And when they say the thing that flips the button in you inside you, and and just I was waiting for somebody to push that switch, and I didn't know I was waiting for that switch to be pushed. But I'm so grateful those teachers knew enough about because the work was terrible. By the way, these awful, <laughs> awful, awful songs, and. But there was something in it that they both saw as having potential, and it encouraged me to keep going. And so that was when I started. I was a sophomore in college, and um, I I kept I kept writing, and I didn't start writing lyrics until much much later, until uh, around the time I wrote my new philosophy for You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, which was the late '90s. But that but that first seed was in 1984. So how many musicals have you written that have not seen the light of day? Uh, I have, well, none. <laughs> Actually, okay. none, except that that one. Um, uh, everything else I've done has at least had uh, public readings or a production outside of New York City. I've been really lucky in that way. I have two shows, one called Jerry Christmas, which I wrote with the playwright Daniel Goldfarb, and one called Asphalt Beach, I wrote with Tom Smith and Peter Spears. Uh, Asphalt Beach had a production in Chicago at the American Musical Theater program at AMTP at um, Northwestern University. And because of that, I got The Addams Family. That was basically my audition for The Addams Family. So that was fine with me. And Jerry Christmas, we developed at Theater Works in uh, Mountain View, California, and at New York Stage at Film, which happens at Vassar every year in Poughkeepsie. And uh, that show just never got quite formed in the way we wanted it to. And so we abandoned it. And those are the two titles that have never um, that have never had that you know gone all the way quote unquote where they were recorded licensed published uh, and finished quote unquote but um, you never know we might go back to them some years later who knows <laughs> so what is the most well we'll start off with the positive for you what is the most satisfying part of uh, writing and producing and, and getting into the production of a show. Uh, you know, it's Sondheim. Sondheim really, it's going to be hard to to quote anyone else ever about this subject because I think he sort of said the definitive thing, you know, look, I made a hat where there never was a hat. And um, that that is the satisfying thing to to sit with colleagues and talk about what it might be and or to sit by myself and 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 have that same inner conversation um, and then to make something that satisfies me that makes me feel like I've created something that I meant to say or to find a version of myself um, through the prism of a character or an idea. Um, I always say that writing is uh, selfish. Uh, it's like therapy in a way to me. It's it's just a way for me to get to know myself better. And uh, and I, uh, Stephen Schwartz, my friend and mentor, has uh, said to me um, said to me many years ago. He said, "Sooner or later, you will look at all of the titles you've written, all of the shows you've written, and realize you're writing the same thing over and over again." And um, and he's not wrong. Like I can I can see inside my work what it is that drives me and what I'm interested in. And it comes out very differently because each time it's a different story and different characters and uh, different uh, musical language. But um, but. I understand much more now what Stephen was talking about. So it's actually just the the making of things to know that I've uh, made things. And then the gravy is, you know, there's a lot of gravy. It's the, the social aspect of putting it together with other people. Um, you know, you with, with, with writing a novel, you need one reader at a time. With making a musical, you need lots of people at a time in order to... Um, share the experience on the page it, it's nothing but when you sit down and play it and sing it it becomes something and so it's um the performing arts are fun in that way because it's a very social and and it allows you to work with other people and it's an it, very intimate because when Kristen Chenoweth and I sing and play together it, it's it's very intimate I feel like I know Kristen in a way that few people do because we kind of get inside each other's souls as we as we do songs together that I've written, and uh, that's wonderful. And then on top of that, the gravy beyond that becomes the number of people you might be able to reach. Speaking of Kristen, mm -hmm. we did a song for a 
Disney movie called Descendants, which was on the Disney Channel this summer. It's the number one uh, cable movie of the year in terms of number of people who've watched it. And uh, my song, Evil Like Me, uh, has been viewed over 25 million times on YouTube. And um, the film has been enormously successful all around the world, and Kristen plays Maleficent. But for us to reach 25 million people, and those are individual hits, so 25 million people, that's like, I don't know how to fathom. It's five teenage girls watching it. No, no, it has to be. Listen, <laughs> over there, and over and over. I've, I've done the research. I'm told it's separate IP addresses, so it has to be a different device. So it's five teenage girls with eight million devices each. Um, so uh, we... Um, Not to minimize. No, no. But but that, that then becomes the next level yeah. of thrill, you know, when you can reach that many people and monetize, you know, make a living doing this thing, you know? So, so it's, a, it's a complex answer because the first answer is, yes, I, I like to express myself, and, but, you know, I'm not, an insu- I'm not Charles Ives and selling insurance mm-hmm. during the day and then, um, you know, just finding time to write my symphonies at night. I'm fortunate that I'm a And, I'm a and writing the quarter tone piano. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm a working artist and I'm able to work uh, uh, on lots of different things. Next week, I'm going to China uh, I was commissioned by the Guangzhou Symphony Orchestra to write a five-movement work that's being premiered by them and Lang Lang, the pianist, a uh, famous classical pianist, and I'm conducting it in front of 200,000 people on Christmas Day. And so again, it's like, it's like th- there's so many levels to that because I studied piano and I got to a certain proficiency, but I'm no Lang Lang. And so I... I got to uh, see a rehearsal. I got a little tiny bit of a snippet of a video of a rehearsal from a couple days ago that they did in China without me because Lang Lang's busy until the day of the show and then when I'll rehearse with him. And there I saw Lang Lang playing music I wrote and with an 80-piece orchestra accompanying it. And I'm going to be there conducting that. And I get to go to China and they pay me. Like, it's mm-hmm. so incredible to be in that fortunate position. So... Um, I mention it because, you know, it's gratitude that, that always steps into the picture um, because I really do feel it. Um, what is your training with music? Uh, I was vocal. I, I was always, always, always a singer. And I have a, my degree was, uh, my initial degree was in vocal performance at the University of Michigan. Um, I s- sang in the synagogue. I had a lot of experience in, singing in the synagogue and Jewish music is a, an important part of my upbringing. Um, always in choirs, um, and then started playing piano and took private lessons when I was in eighth grade. Um, and I advanced very quickly. Within about three years, I was playing a Beethoven, uh, Beethoven second piano concerto and um, challenging music like that. And um, then I went to the University of Michigan, and that was when it was you know serious mm-hmm. theory, orchestration, conducting, and those were all things that I wanted to explore. So they were beyond the normal quote-unquote voice major uh, expectation. But those were things that I was also very interested in. I started conducting and music directing and uh, really wanted to know how music worked from the inside. So um, I eventually got a degree in music education because that was a uh, uh, something I was also interested in and something that would be felt like a, for lack of a better word, a practical um, degree so that when I got to New York, I could get a job at least Mm -hmm. in some ways in music. And I did. I got a job teaching at a private school and was a teacher for my first four years in New York. So then as you were transitioning, you know, everything and writing musical theater, was your education musical theater all like kind of practical hands-on or did you do other theories to decide how to write for a musical and how to serve the book? Uh, Yeah, part um, part of it is observational. You know, you just want to have the experience of watching musicals and, and, and figuring out how they tick. Um, in the same way that a kid who might be a, a mechanical engineer takes apart watches, you know, that sort of thing. And um, I also applied to the BMI Musical Theater Program, a musical theater writing program, which is a, still in operation and a profoundly important thing uh, in the life of many of us who make musicals because we get, you got the opportunity to be in a room with other colleagues, uh, partner with different writers, uh, get assignments so that you were, you were, your feet were held mm-hmm. to the fire. You had to show up with something next mm-hmm. week and... Um, and it was it was great to be in a community of people who were committed to making musicals and writing musicals and trying to learn um, learn from each other's uh, failures and mistakes. 
And uh, so that was a really profound experience. And that's where I met Tom Greenwald, my first major collaborator with whom I wrote our first show, which Jeffrey Seller again, mm -hmm. produced and directed at a synagogue on the Upper West Side. Um, we had a $10,000 budget we put on this show um, that Tom and I wrote the score for. And then Tom and I wrote John and Jen, which is my two-hander musical that um, was produced 20 years ago in New York. And we had our 20-year revival this year with Kate Baldwin and Connor Ryan and got a new recording out of it and uh, breathed some life into an old project that people still do, which is kind of amazing to me, something we started writing 25 years ago and people are still doing it. And that's that's really a blessing. So at that time, that early time, I would uh, I started writing shows and uh, when I discovered The Wild Party, I went into a bookstore and saw the poem and I hadn't written lyrics yet. And it was the, near the end of 1995. And I thought, I'm going to just set uh, this to music. I'm going to like cats. You know, I'm going to set the poem to music, which I started doing. And uh, early on found out there's, uh, you know, realized there's very little in the first person in that poem. And I wanted to write, I feel, I think, I am, I want. So I started writing the lyrics. And who else but Jeffrey Seller? I called Jeffrey and I used to call people on the phone and say, can I play this over the phone for you? Can we just listen to this? And what do you think of this? And I played Jeffrey a couple songs over the phone and he said, who wrote the lyrics? And I said, I did. And he said, keep going. That's good. And uh, a year later, a year and a half later, uh, Jeffrey and his then business partner, Kevin McCollum, uh, uh, signed a deal to produce the show, which they ended up doing with the Manhattan Theater Club. So it was, uh, it was amazing for me to just... Um, just, I, I, the, you know, part of the ethos is just keep going, mm -hmm. you know, don't, don't stop, just keep going and, and you'll, you know, write the thing that you're passionate about. Um, I just, I only really up because it's, it's got to be a little bit interesting coming from the source, but then of course the wild party, I mean, I think for theater geeks spurred one of the most odd battles in history. I mean, it's not, it's not a, it's kind of an obscure source. And yet all of a sudden at the same time we get two wild party musicals. There were? Emerging. <laughs> you didn't know? No. <laughs> so for those uh, listeners yeah. who don't know this story, Michael John Lacuse and George C. Wolfe wrote yeah. a version of The Wild Party that is also based on the same poem. So what happened, the reason, um, uh, the reason that that might have happened is that the, pub, the poem was republished in 1995 by Art, with drawings by Art Spiegelman, the famous cartoonist who... Uh, created the Mouse series, uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, books, uh, graphic novels about his father's experience of the Holocaust. And um, they have these incredible drawings, and the poem was written in 1927. I think it was 27 or 28. And um, the uh, and so, um, the, and so the poem is also uh, copyright-free in the United States. Yeah. So it's in the public domain in the U.S. And, and so neither Michael, John, and George, nor I had to seek the rights to it. And... Uh, Somehow it got introduced to Michael John. Michael John started it, and then George came out as director, I think, and then co-writer. And um, and that was being developed at the Public Theater, and mine was being developed at the Manhattan Theater Club. And fortunately, I didn't find out about its existence until late in 1998. Mm -hmm. And after that, I had already written a couple drafts. We had done it at the O'Neill Theater Center. Jeffrey and Kevin had come on board as commercial producers. MTC had committed to producing it on their uh, uh, on one of their stages. And so it was really a question of... Um, I remember Jeffrey said to me, we're going to do your show. They're going to do their show. Let's just, it's not a big deal. And, you know, who knows? Lots of people, that's what they chose to write about. Neither show uh, picked up to, to, uh, to you know, an, an, um, neither show was, was beloved by the critics. Some critics liked both and some critics mm -hmm. didn't like both. And um, both shows have their supporters and detractors. And uh, we had our show at Encores in, at City Center, the Encores mm -hmm. series this summer with Sutton Foster and Steve Pasquale and an incredible, uh, incredible cast of people, uh, Brandon Victor Dixon, and um, just an amazing group of people did a week-long performance of the show. And I got a chance to do some rewriting. I added, I put in a new song and um, that was exciting for me. And, uh, and the... 2,200 people a night. We sold, it was one of the highest selling shows they've ever done there. And um, we, it was greeted like a rock concert. Every, every time a vamp would start or a song had a big button, the place erupted. I mean, I, I, this is not me being a, a, a bragging. This is the reality. It was erupted like rock and concert eruption. And 
it was so thrilling. And I thought, well, there, you know, there's a core audience of people who love this thing and it gets done in a lot of places. And I don't, you know, the whole bore of the wild parties, you know, maybe that was a good thing in the end. Maybe it got us more attention than we ever would have gotten otherwise. Mm -hmm. So, and that attention may translate into more interest in the show itself. Yeah. Well, I know you have a, a bunch of other stuff lined up for the day, but I really appreciate you spending the time to not only talk about the drama skill, but then hang around for another 45 minutes and talk about well, your thanks. wonderful career and, and being so upfront and honest about a lot of subjects that I think artists all over the place are wrestling with. So um, best of luck with all your upcoming projects. The The project that's about to be announced that we have no idea what it is. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks. If you are a regular listener, or if you have just discovered Broadway Bullet, I have just set up a Patreon page. Please support our program by pledging a dollar amount for each podcast episode. I'm not going to make anything from these donations. All donations will go to expenses in producing the program and providing flexible, part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the editing, follow-up, and more. Visit patreon.com slash broadwaybullet to contribute, or just click the link on our main webpage. Thanks in advance for your support in creating quality theater podcast programming. All right, let's get back to the show. Listening Room. We're going to share two songs this episode from the new musical Band Geeks, and it's written by Gobby Alter and Tommy Newman. Gobby is the recipient of a Jonathan Larson grant award for best original score from both the San Diego and San Francisco theater critic circles and a 2014 ASCAP plus award for musical theater among many other things. Tommy is originally from Georgia as a Southern writer with an ear for all kinds of styles, having written musicals and everything from Latin pop to country gospel. So we're sharing lost in the brass, which is sung by Lindsay Mendez. Here we go. There it goes again. The moment's gone, and I'm too lame to speak. Another wasted opportunity. Always waiting for something to happen. But nothing's gonna happen. Not for me. Buddy, I'm always buddy. I'm a girl for your information Forever in this situation Waiting and hoping He'll notice how I'm feeling But every time I get him near I fade away, I disappear That's me, never getting heard He just smiles and walks away Like I never said a word Oh, can anybody hear me? Am I just blowing air While the whole world marches past Till I blow Flutes don't sparkle quite like batons There's no visual attraction, no stimulus reaction Pretty music, <laughs> that's all the pretty that I got I'm special in a quiet way, at least that's what my parents say Whatever, they were never in the band their hair is turning gray. No, they don't understand. Oh, can anybody hear me? I just know, I know I could sparkle on the grass, but my melody can never be heard clearly. I just get lost, lost, lost in the grass. I get so I don't wear makeup, I don't stick my hair up, 
with some awesome tastic pink barrette. No, I'll never be a majorette. I'm plain, I'm basic, and I sweat when I get nervous. I suck at popularity. People just don't notice me someday. High school's got to end, and I'll finally find a place where this woodwind doesn't blend. Oh, there's a whole world to be pursuing if I could just get out and leave this all here in the past. Yeah, they'll remember me thinking, gosh, how is she doing? And I'll be long gone. Oh, I'll be solo obligato, cutting loud and clear, right through the tuba blast, soaring high above that clumsy bass vibrato. I won't be lost, lost, lost in the brass. And finally they'll see there's so much more to me at last. All right, that was Lost in the Brass, sung by Lindsay Mendez, written by Gabby Alter and Tommy Newman. If you want to find out more about them, visit www.gabbyalter.com, that's G-A-B-Y-A-L-T-E-R, or www.tommynewman.com. And we're going to have another song from that musical coming up a little bit later in the program. Breaking the business. I have my evil chance. I have sitting in the seat across from me. (laughs) The people that everyone loves to hate. The people that they want to want them. We have a critic. Adam Feldman of the New York, uh, of Time Out New York on the Broadway Cabaret Beat is here to uh, talk uh, about all things theater criticism with us. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I prefer to think of it as the people that people hate to love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In either case, well, I have a lot to talk about you with, but I, I bet one of the first questions that will be a big interest to a lot of people listening is that eternal question of, how do I get you to come to my show? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult. You know, there are certain shows that we cover as a matter of course. So everything that opens on Broadway, for example, we will review. Uh, Nearly everything that opens uh, in a major off-Broadway company space, we will review. And I'm at I'm at like the bodega on the corner. Right. (laughs) Well, that's that's harder. And off-off is uh, Mm -hmm. is definitely harder. Uh, And we have fewer resources now than we had, say, ten years ago, when we really uh, got to review a lot more of the smaller shows than we get to review today. Uh, there are certain companies and certain spaces that are likelier to get our attention. Uh, ones that have a, you know, off, off Broadway is a very wide category and there are a lot of different kinds of shows within it. Uh, there are very serious experimental companies that are doing, uh, exciting and important work that is off, off Broadway. And we will certainly do our best to cover that when, when we know it's happening. Um, and then there's a, a wide range of other shows, some of which may, may be terrific, but are by artists that are less established. Uh, and, uh, and then there's a wide range of just sort of shows by people just out of college and, and putting on Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, you know, in Long Island City. And that is great, but not for us, not for us to cover. Um, and so sometimes, you know, I, in, in the case of smaller shows, I will sometimes see things on spec and then run a review if I think it's great. Really? You'll just go to a show? Sometimes. Less, <laughs> a little bit less lately than, than, I, than I used to, but I still, I still try to do it. And even some off-Broadway shows, if it, uh, if it doesn't seem like it's worth reviewing, if it doesn't seem like it's ready to be reviewed, uh, then sometimes I'll just kill the review. Um, and that's a weird decision uh, because, of course, it, in some ways it's useful to get your name out there even in a bad review. But on the other hand, it can be damaging, I think, to emerging artists to be slapped down early in a public way. And you don't... You don't take an evil thrill at that? No, you know, I don't. I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, there's, a, there's a, as an image of critics as uh, sadists, and I guess maybe there's an element of that sometimes. Uh, but for the most part, I don't think it's true. I think that people who who do this for a living, do it because we love it. Um, certainly, if we didn't, it would be excruciating, given the amount mm-hmm. of uh, shows that we do see. I see hundreds of shows every year. And if I didn't love it, 
as a form, it, I wouldn't be able to do it. I would have offed myself years ago, <laughs> to the delight of some. But, uh, but you know, it, it's um, ultimately you go to shows hoping that you'll you'll, you'll like them. And the, and and as satisfying as it can sometimes be to write a funny, mean review, you do want to save those for occasions when the target is big enough and the work is bad enough that there's a kind of a magical combination that justifies the tone. I Otherwise, still remember a very hysterical bad review of Camelot with Richard Burton about 25 <laughs> years ago that I loved reading aloud. It was so... <laughs> well, well, that's what I mean. That's, the, that's where the hate to love part yeah, comes in because, um, you know, the truth is that almost nobody is as vicious about theater as theater people. And I don't mean critics. I mean people who work in the theater, actors and directors and writers, uh, are crueler than almost any review that I have ever written or read. Uh, John Simon accepted. The, you know, uh, and, and they are so because they, uh, they care about it. They care about the art form deeply. And, and, it's, uh, and it's frustrating to see bad work. Uh, it's especially frustrating to see bad work succeed. And so you do want to, you know, nip that in the bud if you can. Because there are, you know, the, we live in a world of limited time and resources. And you can't tell everyone to go see everything. People don't have that luxury. And you don't want to send people to bad things because b bad theater is dangerous. It makes people less inclined to go to the theater again um, for, for a number of reasons. But, uh, but basically, I, I, think I, you know, I, I think there's a real big irony in the fact that one bad show will get somebody to say, I don't like theater. But I've ever ne never yet heard somebody who's seen a bad movie <laughs> right. say, no, movies are not for me. Well, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, bad theater, and I've said this before, but I'll, I'll, it's worth repeating, I think. <laughs> bad theater is worse than other bad art forms. Um, there's a special discomfort <laughs> that comes from being at bad theater. Because you're right there, and they're right there. And there's an energy exchange that's supposed to be happening between the performers and the audience. And you, as an audience, have a role in that. You're, you're contributing to the experience that you and everyone else around you is having, including the actors. And so there's a pressure on you to respond. Uh, when something is funny, you feel like you... I mean, when something is funny, you laugh, and mm -hmm. it's wonderful. When something is supposed to be funny and isn't, there's a deep discomfort mm -hmm. when something is supposed to be working and isn't. And you know that it's not working. The actors know that you know that it's not working. You know that they know that you know that they know that you know that they're not working. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you're stuck in that seat. Uh, and you have a responsibility to other audience members around you to behave. You can't just like get up and go for a sandwich the way you would at a boring moment in a television show. You're, you're stuck there, and the actors are stuck there, and because of the nature of the art form, the presentation itself is fairly static, so there isn't even that much to look at for the most part. Um, unlike movies or television, where the scene is constantly changing, at least there are visuals. At least you can get caught up in, in the camera movement and the and the different uh, you know uh, vistas that you're being given by the director. Here, it's mostly uh, you know someone's dining room, <laughs> and if you're if you're bored, you will be excruciatingly bored. It's like being stuck looking at the naked guy in the locker room. Yes. <laughs> sort of like that. Um, and it's never the naked guy you want. You know. But the, <laughs> the, the uh, but that's it, you know, and, and so, so theater is, is weird that way. On the other hand, it's, it's, it's exciting that way, too. Uh, when it's good, it gives you a special thrill of being actually at a live event that's happening um, and being part of it in a way that that you're not when you're watching film or television. Because film or television, I, I love both of those media when they're great. Um, but uh, but they're, uh, they're dead by the time you see them. You know, they could bury those, uh, those films in the ground and they would be exactly the same as if they were seen by a million people. The, the object itself would be exactly mm -hmm. the same. And, uh, and theater is different. It, it changes depending on and uh, what uh, changes night to night. It changes depending on what the actors do. It also changes depending on what the audience does. So it's a much more fluid, much more exciting real life event uh, when it's good. That's an interesting point. Um, have you ever gone back to see a show for a second time and been like, wait a minute, what I thought about it the first time was not, was completely wrong? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say completely wrong, yeah. but I will. I, I've certainly seen shows again and had a different experience of them. Um, and uh, I will usually go to see a, a show again when I liked it very much. And 
Really? Yeah, you don't go see the the, the, I usually the turd balls. Well, no, sometimes <laughs> over I have to. Sometimes I have to because <laughs> I'll, I'll be re-reviewing a show mm -hmm. that I'd already seen, and there and, and we'll be reinvited, and there will be a, a major cast change or some such, uh, and we'll see it again. And sometimes, in fairness, sometimes the show really does improve. Usually, the original production is the best production, and that mm -hmm. goes. That's a, a rule of thumb pretty much across the board. And there are lots of reasons for that. They have more rehearsal time. Uh, they've been cast to it. The show, if it's a new show, has been adjusted around what they do um, and to play to their strengths and what's working for them in front of the audiences that they have been performing in front of. And then someone else comes into the part and it's already been frozen. Uh, so you, and, and also, once a, sh a cast or a production has been running for a year, there's a an inevitable loss of energy that takes mm -hmm. place once you've been doing the same thing over and over again for, for, for that long. Uh, so I would generally recommend that people see the original cast and see it as soon as possible um, when they can. That said, there are certainly times when a new cast member or a new production will completely reinvigorate the show. I don't know. I, mm -hmm. uh, for example, Color Purple uh, was a really interesting case study for me because I saw it when it opened in 2005. And uh, I didn't think it worked. There were things in it that were fine, mm -hmm. um, but I didn't think it worked. And Lashans is a, a wonderful professional musical theater actress, but for me, she wasn't Seely. And the show has certain limitations in the way it's written, through which, for various reasons, we don't need to get into. Mm -hmm. Seely is not written as centrally as perhaps she could be. Uh, and uh, in the novel, that's not a problem because it's an epistolary novel and everything that you're reading is coming out of Celie's mouth and, and through her eyes. But in the musical, it's not. And uh, you didn't get a very strong sense of Celie in the original production. Now, a year later, Fantasia went into that part. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and Fantasia was sensational. Uh, not just that she is enormously talented, mm -hmm. but also she was bringing this star power from having recently come off of American Idol. And also, you had a real feeling that she had lived this life. Uh, she had been uh, pregnant when she was a teenager. She had come to success. She had a, a religious faith. Uh, and she brought that sense. Uh, and also, she had a different look from, uh, uh, from Lashan's. Uh, because Celia is not supposed to be great looking. And it's a plot point mm -hmm. that she's not. You know, a mister doesn't want to marry her. He wants to marry her beautiful sister, Nettie. And, and uh, Suge Avery shows up at her doorstep and says, you know, you ugly. Mm -hmm. And when you say that to Lashans, it's ridiculous because <laughs> Lashans is adorable, you know. Uh, and so we're just supposed to suspend disbelief. Now, Fantasia is, is a, a nice looking woman who becomes beautiful when she sings. Mm -hmm. And that's what the show is about. And it worked. And, and, and Fantasia's star energy and star power pulled the whole show into her orbit, and it made Seely the center of the show again in a way that it hadn't been in the original production. The whole show clicked into place in a completely different way. And that's something that can happen with the right combination of actor and material. And then again, you know, they're reviving it now, John mm -hmm. Doyle's production, um, with uh, Cynthia Revo, who's wonderful. But, uh, but John Doyle's production takes the material and... Uh, and does it in a completely different way, in a very stripped down way. It's about 40% mm -hmm. smaller in cast and in theater size from the original production. And uh, it's much more muted in the color palette and in the performance styles and in the emphasis. And for me, it, was, it really was like watching a different show. It wasn't just that the star had pulled it into mm -hmm. orbit. It was that the whole production had put Seeley in the middle and shaved away some of the distractions on the side. And so... Uh, and it's, it's a case, again, where you become acutely aware of the importance of the direction and of the, uh, of the performers to really reshape the material in dramatic ways. Yeah, great, great way of putting it. <laughs> and John Doyle, by the way, is not a director that I habitually love. Uh, I think that he is tasteful to a fault. I think he often is, seems very suspicious of American musical theater uh, performance and of comedy and mm -hmm. dance, uh, and that can be damaging for uh, material that, he's, that he sometimes works on. But in this case, the original material is, uh, is very big, and so <clears throat> the corrections that his style brings to it, uh, the corrections that his style bring to it, um, well, mm, uh, what, how do I phrase that? <laughs> the corrections that his style brings. 
to it. Yeah. Oh, I got lost in my sentence for a second. Uh, the corrections of his style uh, really, really help in, in sort of balancing out this particular material. State of theater criticism in this country. <clears throat> oh, boy. I mean, whether, whether we love to hate you or hate to love you, I think most of us are missing you. You know, you know, you know um, as theater criticism shrinks. Well, it has been shrinking, and I think it's a real problem for the art form, to be honest. Uh, and, I, and I'm not just saying that because I happen to be yeah. a theater critic. Uh, I enjoyed reading theater criticism long before I became a theater critic. It's one reason I became a theater critic. Uh, I think it has a valuable role to play in the conversation around the art form. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of factors that go into people's decisions about what to see. Uh, and, you know, the critic's opinion is just one small, <clears throat> relatively small part of that decision pie. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's an important one. There's, there's going to be word of mouth. And there's going to be advertising. There's going to be star power. There's going to be the title. There's going to be, uh, you know, group sale. There's going to be a lot of things going into what gets sold. Um, but uh, part of it is that larger question of, is this good? Is this uh, important? Is it interesting? Is it original? Is it smart? And, um, and those are questions that critics can help guide people about. Um, not that any one critic is always right, but that's one reason why the more critics are in the game, the better, you know, uh, because individual critics are always going to have quirks we're we're not uh, omnipotent uh but i know it's shocking critic uh, admits he's not omnipotent <laughs> well some of, the, some of us are right more than others you know um but uh but it's useful to have a, a lot of different voices blending together into uh into a group sound and the more of those voices drop out uh the less full the range of opinion that you're getting uh, and the less accurate ultimately the range of opinion you're getting is um and so i, I worry a lot about that uh, the conventional media has been shrinking uh in meaningful ways and some of the first things that have been on the chopping block are arts coverage because they're not deemed essential well i think some of these because they're essentially local and they're local. And that's a big part of it, is that a lot of the traffic that they're trying to get now is national. So for art forms specifically that are local, uh, because film and music and things like that, you can, especially mm -hmm. film and television, you can, you can attract a national audience for it. For, for theater and dance and uh, opera and classical and, you know, uh, things that are mostly pegged to local events, art, um, these are hard to get a national audience for unless there's a big star name attached. And, uh, and what that means, it's not that anyone's sitting down exactly at a table and saying, uh, and making this calculus, but, it, um, but as decisions get made and as the models shift, um, they shift away from detailed local coverage. Um, and it's a, it's a big problem. It's, it's a problem across the board. It's a problem for news as well, by the way, not mm -hmm. just for arts coverage. Or it's a problem for political news. You know, uh, we're getting fewer and fewer places who have in-depth understanding and contacts and uh, and context for things like state politics, for things like municipal politics. Um, they're being shaved away, and they're not really being replaced. All right, thank you so much, Adam Feldman, thank you for, for coming me. down and and sharing your unique insights as a. Uh, as a critic, uh, it's something I had. Somebody like I said, I haven't had the chance to talk to a critic before, and great I had a lot to ask you. So you can follow me on Twitter at Feldman Adam. That's all. Okay, that's all I had to at say. At Feldman Adam. Yeah, it's all just right. my name, but backwards. Ooh, <laughs> I know it's a twist. Should I critique you? <laughs> Whenever you like. Whenever you like. All right. Have a good day. You too. Listening room. All right, just like I promised, we've got another song from Band Geeks written by Gobby Alter and Tommy Newman. This song is called Twirler Girl, and it's sung by Alex Brightman. Hello, Elliot, she said. I think she finally noticed me. Those are the first words she said since we were in sophomore chemistry. When she said, Pass the pipette, please. 
she noticed that I'm not the same And this time she even used my name Bright white tennis shoes, a smile that cures any blues She makes my flag unfurl But do I really have a prayer? I'm just a tuba player And she's a twirler girl She's a twirler girl Elliot, I think she has a boyfriend Not anymore, he broke up with her Wasn't he like the captain of the swim team or something? What's your point? Think she likes guys who are tall Who act real macho and in command strawberry swirl she could drink it while i eat a salad with a side of pita she'll be my twirler girl she'll be my twirler girl well i hope the two of you are very happy together i've got work to do later elliot and nicole is prettier than my brother's girlfriend the miss cuyahoga falls winner my whole family would look at me differently if I brought her home to have dinner. My dad would put down his golf magazine, and my mom would stop watching TV. And they'd see that I was someone, for once I'd be someone, not just my weatherman brother, but me. Then she'd come up to my room and we'd sit on my floor Reading rare back issues of the Fantastic Four Then we'd watch all three Star Wars movies in succession And I'd crack her up with my Chewbacca impression And we'll play two-player on my Nintendo system And I'll play her Sousa marches, how could she resist them? Cause secretly she'd say I like all that stuff Just like me, a music lover and a sci-fi buff and Finally, she'd see I was good enough. I'd be good enough. And we'd ride to school in her little red VW, the former swine and his pearl. And all the jocks will turn around to get a better view of me and my twirler. Finally, I'd walk the halls without any cat calls. No, they'd have the insults to her. Was Twirler Girl, sung by Alex Brightman, for the musical Band Geeks, written by Gobby Alter and Tommy Newman. So uh, let's look for great things from those guys. All right. Up close. Avenue Q off Broadway has just been hitting a new milestone, which is that it's now run off Broadway as long as it ran on Broadway. So I thought, what better time to revisit uh, some of the greatness that is in Avenue Q? And with us, we have actor Nick Cohn, who is currently gracing the stage at New World Stages. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? <laughs> good. I'm good. How are you? Good. So what are you playing in Avenue Q? Are you Gary Coleman? Ah. <laughs> I want to, but they just won't let me for some reason. Um, I play uh, Brian, and he is uh, he is a chubby wannabe comedian, which is, you know, some days tr actual truth for me. And uh, he's married to Christmas Eve in the show, and they are uh, the only married couple in the show. And they kind of have this somewhat wisdom because they've been around longer than everyone else, but they're still trying to figure things out, too. So it's kind of a... It's a group group dynamic of everyone just trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives and how they're going to operate after college. And then after college, it's like, oh, I have to have a career. And then you think about kids and it's just <laughs> it's just one thing after the next about life. So now you've I, I understand you've done Avenue Q a few other places, too, right? Uh, no, this is actually the only. Well, well yes, a few other places. I, I see what you mean. Um, I did the Vegas production in 2005 and we were there for about nine months at the Wynn Hotel. 
And Do then you know Cole Porter by any chance? Yes, I know Cole Porter. I went to college with him. Oh, I love Cole Porter. You must have <laughs> Cole Porter stories for days. <laughs> yeah, he's actually in my fraternity too. Oh my besides god! Besides my I program. can't even imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, we had a, we actually had two casts in Vegas. We had uh, the Yellow Bear cast and the Blue Bear cast, and he and I were in opposite casts. But we we had a lot of fun, and he was he's such a character. And I used to go to him and be like, your name is really Cole Porter. And he said, yeah. And he said, it's actually Irish. I said, it's actually also a composer's yeah. name. <laughs> well, the, when, you know, that, that the first year he was at school, at the audition sign-up sheet at their college, somebody, you know, somebody had scratched out his name and said, no joking around here. <laughs> oh, so that, yeah, we had a, yeah, we had, we had a, we had so much fun in Vegas. It was just such a, it was a great gig. It was my first like really production contract gig. And, um, they gave us housing and we had, you know, full access to the casino. We could have, you know, the, the dining room there was the best in the strip. And they gave us rented cars and furnished apartments and a green room that you could just, you know, that would rival something out of a out of a furniture store or something. It was so great. So um, and then I was uh, I went to Broadway in 2008 um, and then I made the transfer actually with Avenue Q to New World Stages. And I've been with it ever since. So I guess. Off and on, I've been with the show for about ten years. Wow! And um, I, uh, the transfer was interesting because we had three weeks to move the show, and I think it cost somewhere around a million dollars to move the show, and they made that back in like six months because Avenue mm -hmm. Q was still selling so well, and mm -hmm. and we've been there now over six years. Like you said, we've surpassed the Broadway run, and it's it's been so great and just so. It's nice to have a job and it's nice to be doing a fun show every night and the audiences, they bring their friends and they come back and we've just, we've enjoyed a really nice successful run there so far. So have you been the same role for 10 years? Yeah. How do you sustain freshness and, and interest Drugs in, in a role? And alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it is one thing, you know, especially we have a lot of students listening and while they can get training and do a lot of plays, I mean, the one thing you really can never get out of our educational system is, <laughs> What it's like to run a show, you know, a, a commercial run that you mm -hmm. have to keep fresh for a long time. It's it's definitely like their days is a challenge. It's it's really a challenge when you have a kid because my wife and I just had a baby this year. So our sleep is is very, very low right now. But you've got to find a way to to make it happen mm -hmm. on stage. But I, I think the the most fun thing I love about Avenue Q is that the audience is always different every night. Sometimes they react crazy, sometimes they don't. And then we've, you know, had some cast changes over the years and that's always kept it fresh. Um, but ultimately, I think you have to just remember that you're there to do a job and you're there to tell a story and you're there to perform. And that's what you want to do with your life. And, <laughs> and it's kind of like if, if you know, if uh, th there are days when I'm like, I'm so tired and I, you know, we, we go to the show and we're on like our seventh or eighth show for the week. And then I have to remember that, like, there's no other career on the planet that when you leave your job at the end of the day, people stand up and applaud. Like, can you imagine if they did that in an office? They'd be like, oh, great TPS report today. You know what I mean? Like, you, you really nailed that 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 PowerPoint presentation. They, wouldn't the world be a better place if they <laughs> yeah, exactly, did do that? Yeah. Just, yeah. Everyone's standing up and everyone's <laughs> applauding. Um, so good. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, and I, I consider myself, It's I'm very lucky, and I'm... I've been lucky that they've, you know, kept me around as long as they have. And I love doing the show. And I really it's it was um, it kind of like started my career in terms of everything I've done so far up until now. And I've, I've just I'll always love Avenue Q and I'll always do it 100 percent. I love it. So was there is there any difference for you in doing Avenue Q at New World Stages versus in the Broadway house? Um, uh, let me think about that. Well, we definitely have like there's a little bit. Uh, physically, there's some different things. Like we don't have a fly space at New World Stages, so a lot of the sets stuff that we had that would come out of the fly, we don't have anymore. So it has to come in from the side. So there's like little adjustments like that. But for the most part, I mean, it's 300 seats less, give or take, mm -hmm. and the audiences are the same. And uh, quite frankly, a lot of them don't know the difference between Broadway and Off Broadway, and they just know that it's Avenue Q. They don't even yeah. know that it's you know. And um, it, the only difference I would say has been. Sometimes we get rowdier crowds at New World Stages. A lot of drinkers because mm -hmm. you can take your drinks to your seat, and they have and they, they have bushers that oh, bring drinks yeah. to you. Yeah, <laughs> and they pour real heavy at New World Stages. So, <laughs> sometimes people have a lot of fun, and um, we actually—it's funny we get more. Is that good or bad for this show? Because the show's so rowdy and raucous and raunchy. I'm always a fan of 
a rowdier audience than not than a quiet audience. But um, sometimes they bring kids. They don't realize it's a it's an adult yeah. show. And sometimes there's it's puppets. Yeah, it's <laughs> they, puppets they just, they just, for kids. They just think it's you know, uh, and we get a three year old in the front row, and then you know when Rod sings Canada and he says that. P word at the end of it. A lot of times they're confused and they don't know what's happening. Or the puppet sex, they just most of the time it just kind of goes over their head. But um, we actually had one you time. Think. Oh well. <laughs> and that's the thing. A, a New York ten is yeah. much more savvy than like a Midwest or Southern or you know another ten year old that's there. But uh, there was one night that um, they have this thing after um, loud as the hell you want when you're making yeah. love. There's a video clip that says, uh, the, woman sa- the woman says, come. And the yeah. man says, mitment, come, mitment, come, mitment, commitment. And the audience laughs. And in the dead silence, this little three-year-old says, mommy, what's going on? <laughs> 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 There's just stuff like that that, you know, I'm always like, well, they're going to learn at some point. So. <laughs> so now while you've been doing this show for 10 mm-hmm. years, though, this certainly hasn't been the only thing you've done. No, uh, you you have little side projects, and yes. Jessica Jones is one of them right now. Yes, and I um I'm uh, featured on S- Jessica Jones. It's the, 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 the Jessica Jones is a superhero show on Netflix with Kristen Ritter starring, and um, yeah. you know we're we're at that point now. It's a superhero show. I know, but yep. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Like, it really is a great show, but it's like it's you know it's uh I got cast. It's funny because I got cast in that um right when my right after my son was born. And so I had to go and I was like running back and forth from the hospital and then running to the to the studio and then talking to the costumers and like it was just kind of crazy. And then we filmed it and then and now it's just coming out in October and it's just like, God, that's been 10 months since that happened, you know. Um, but it's a great show and it's 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 got a lot of action and, and it's really smart and it's very, very um, woman powerful. And the three three of the big leads in, in the show are women and they're all powerful women. And I my wife and I are big fans of that. So we're just. So happy that's out there. And I'm always happy to book any kind of TV gigs. I just, I love doing TV and I've been more successful with that in the last few years. So how do you balance? Like, do you need to audition? Did you audition for that? How do you balance your auditions and your side projects with doing a long running show? Um, Well, Avenue Q actually has been very good to me because I've been there so long. Um, They're good at giving me, you know, well, I have my days free to go audition, obviously. But then if if I book a TV show and there's no one going to be out and they'll, you know, very kind to me and let me go and shoot TV stuff. And um, I actually took a leave of absence last year to go to uh, Chicago up at North Shore Music Theater. And I played Amos Hart. And it was only like a three-week leave of absence. Mm-hmm. But again, they're just, they're really great at that. And they find someone who's available who can come and play the role. Because and- there's people everywhere <laughs> who, have, well, who, just, who have done Avenue Q. Yeah. Well, and there's there's a lot of big guys who really want to play Brian, and I think they're all waiting for the day that I either drop dead or move on to something else. You check your, like, coffee really quickly, sniff it. Yeah. yeah do you have a taster? Yeah, exactly. I always, I always say, I said, I've got, I wear those big red shoes in the show, and I'm like, they're going to have to pry these red shoes off my cold, dead feet because <laughs> I love this show so much. <laughs> But yeah, and they're great. And Avenue Q's been great because they'll let me go and shoot an episode of something here and there. And um, it's just Avenue Q is interesting because it's a lot. I don't know if a lot of shows do this, but our show is very much a family and they're very um, protective of each other and we love each other and we take care of each other. And when someone's going through something, we reach out to each other and we help. Like I remember when my, my son was born, I mean, they were sending bags of candy and food to the hospital. It just we have a pretty special circumstance, I think, with our show. Mm-hmm. It's pretty awesome. So how long did it take, well, let's kind of maybe step back earlier sure. in your career, what were some early career things when you weren't making a living, full living yet? You know, what hit <laughs> um, I did, well, I moved before here. Before security. Before security. I moved here in 1999, and the first thing I did that, was That same up. year I moved to New York. Oh, yeah? Yeah. In the fall? Yeah. Look at us. September. We must be the same age, maybe. Uh, I'm 44. Oh, I'm 40. Okay. You win. <laughs> you have four years more. I'm an old four. Wisdom than I do. Um, yeah, I moved here, and the first thing I did was I signed up for a bunch of temp companies, and I started temping, and uh, that was a really, really good, well-paying job to do in the city while I was still looking for work, and it was great because it wasn't permanent, and um, I could go off and audition for stuff and then go do summer stock and come back and... Um, I think the first the first paying theater gig I got was uh, 
I worked at the merry-go-round playhouse. I did Evita and My Fair Lady. I think I made like $200 a week. And uh, I was in the ensemble for both shows. And uh, it was awesome. Like, <laughs> I had no money, and it was awesome. Like, it was just such a great, great thing to actually get a job and actually get paid to do it. So it was definitely something... And, you know, and there's there's other jobs I've had through the years. I did some scavenger hunt companies. I was hosting for that. Um, I did various, like, I mean, I, I if I had to add the number of readings and workshops I've done, it's probably 75 at this point. I mean, which is great because it's great to get on the early side of a show. And yeah. I always tell people, actors always ask me if they have any advice. I said, if anyone offers you a reading, do it. You never know what's going to happen. You never know what show it's going to be. Plus, if it's terrible, you still get a learning experience from it. Just do it. And the other thing I always tell actors is to be a reader at auditions, which I've mm -hmm. done before, because you learn so much in that room watching people do really, really bad things when they walk into an audition <laughs> yeah. room and make Well, being really... on the other side of the fence and seeing, I think, is always a, oh. a great learning experience. That was like the most valuable thing I think I've done in the business is be a reader, because you can see what works, what doesn't. You can see if people can read a room or not, whether or not they say, you know, I, and we've all had crazy auditions. I was in an audition one time where the artistic director picked up a cell phone that was ringing and started talking in the middle of my scene. <laughs> Not even a song, like a scene, yeah. you know what I mean? And, uh, and I just kept speaking and I should have stopped, but I, yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, but there's both sides of an audition room and auditions are crazy. I, I always, people are like, do you like auditioning? I'm like, no, nobody likes auditioning. If they tell you they like auditioning, they don't like it, but it is what it is. It's kind of the way we do things. But I think, uh, there's ways to have fun in those auditions and there's a way to like read people and you know it's nice to know what's happening on the other side because i've always been i've always noticed every time i've been a reader that everyone on the other side of the table really wants you to do well yeah that, they that, want you to be amazing you know what i mean they desperately want the next person in the room to be the reason why they've sat there for six hours exactly <laughs> <laughs> they want you to make their job easy you know and like and just be, and I, I have all these friends that are like, oh, this casting director hates me. I'm like, they don't hate you. No casting director hates you. Mm -hmm. They're bringing you in the room. They want you there for a reason. They want you to do good. Just know that, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, but it was really valuable and I was glad I did it. And I haven't done it in a while and I kind of want to do it again. <laughs> I think it'd be fun, you know, just to kind of remind myself of how supportive everyone is in that room. You just have to remember that, you know? How long did it take you to get your equity card? Um, uh, I did, you, did you come here with your equity card or did No, I, uh, I moved here in 99 and then I... I did a lot of non-equity work, like Merry-Go-Round Playhouse, and then I did the Downtown Cabaret Theater. I did the Buddy Holly story there. Um, I, don't even, I don't even know if it's still a theater anymore, but um, it took me, I, got, I think I got it in 2002, so it took me three years. Mm -hmm. And um, I, it's funny, because I did the national tour of the Buddy Holly story, but the non-equity tour, and once you do a Buddy Holly story, you will do another one at some point because it's very hard to cast because they need people who play instruments or they need a big guy like me to play the big bopper. And either way, like <laughs> there's not that many of them in the business. So I, I've done like four Buddy Holly stories and I got, actually got my card with the Buddy Holly story at Ogunkowit Playhouse in Maine. And um, I was so happy. I was so excited. And it was like, I'm like, you know, I have like a legitimacy now or something. Not that you don't when you're yeah. on equity, but there's something about it. You got it and you're like, Oh, I have this card now, and I can go to these calls, and I can be seen for stuff, you know? Well, thank you so much thank for you. joining us, Nick. It was been, it's been a pleasure. I, I wish you uh, many more successful years as an actor. Thank you very much. And maybe with Avenue Q, maybe yeah. uh, moving on into other pastures. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm just, I'm here, everyone, so hire me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Curtain call. All right. Well, that wraps up volume 706. We've got three more episodes left in this season. So uh, make sure you check those out. Remember, if you want to find out more about the people that we've interviewed in this program, we do put up all of the unedited interviews that I have gotten in the feed as well. So you can go to broadwaybullet.com or check us out on SoundCloud to find that. So, uh, with that, I'd like to give one more thanks and a shout out to our location sponsors, uh, the cast and uh, production crew for Sheer Madness New York for letting us use their rehearsal space, and to the Dramatist Guild Fund for their use of their awesome hall. And also, again, thanks to our uh, sponsor, uh, SeatGeek. Go check them out. Download the app. 
and uh, enter code BB20 and get $20 back on your first purchase. So until then, I am Michael Gilbo. I am your producer and host for this episode. And Ronnie Jones was the associate producer. And we'll see you back on the Broadway Bullet next time. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.